This is Timothy Gordon. Spring is nearly here, and accordingly, we're opening up two new sections of classes for the spring, church history and rules for retrogrades. Church history is a repeat course from the fall. It was so successful that many people could not get in and want to in the spring. Rules for retrogrades is a new course based on my book with my brother, Community Organizing from the Right. Go to timothyjgordon.com for information. Also at timothyjgordon.com, a pre-recorded Catholic Republic course on sale. What's up, parish orphans and retrogrades? Happy Thursday evening. We're doing something here on Rules for Retrogrades that we've never done before, opening up the entire show to Protestants. So my parish orphans and retrogrades out there, you can ask a, a Catholic Protestant question, but we're giving special privilege to questions from the separated brethren themselves, the Protestants out there. And I'll, I'll open with a with a thought or two, but um, I want to introduce a good man. I, Christopher Plants, my friend, the ginger, he's a retrograde and a parish orphan himself. What's up, Christopher? What's up, bro? What's up, man? So good to be back on with you. How's everything going? How's the fam? Well, the fam's good. The, 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 uh, the wife and the kids, how, how about you? Good? Yeah, good. Yeah, we, we needed to wear our backwards hats, bro. Actually, I got one right over there. Would you I know. I know. The thunder cap down there. I was, uh, yeah, thinking, so, about, I was thinking about uh, wearing my mask this whole interview or this whole, whole video since I'm out here in Cali. Yeah. Uh, the mask, uh, and I'll have to punch you through the, the screen uh, virtually for wearing face the mask. Sniper. Yeah, your face, face claw. Well, hey, look, man, here's, here's the thing. Chris, you, you're, you're a good, good man for this hour. I think the perfect man for this hour because you can speak through a lot of the biblical questions. I, I, I want to take them down too, but I, I'm going to start with one of my favorite, I think the most powerful, the, the set piece to Protestant apologetics. Here, here's how it goes. If all 39,000 plus types of Protestant are united by one point, sola scriptura. It's this simple. It's this simple. I, I, I used to tell my students this. If sola scriptura could be ascribed to the middle of the first century AD, right? If the Bible were, were compiled and edited in the middle of the first century AD, then there would be a case for it. It would be a thing that has a shot, sola scriptura, and I guess then Protestantism afterwards. There are tons of other problems we'll deal with, probably a bunch of them, you guys ask your questions in chat. But as such, the Bible was canonized, the Muratonian canon and, and other iterations shortly thereafter, like close to 400 AD, meaning the, the mark of, of, of having a scriptural book is the process of editing. Now, when Martin Luther cut everything down to sola scriptura and he stripped everything away, meaning scripture, Script, uh, tradition and magisterium. What he did was essentially take away the, the block on which scripture rested. The, the Holy Church needed tradition and magisterium in order to canonize the Bible. Um, if the Bible is inerrant, which we believe and the Protestants believe, well, it can only be done so, chronologically speaking, four centuries later, if tradition itself is inerrant and infallible. Imagine this. This is the example I always give. I witness a car accident. I'm the sole witness to the car accident. I know exactly what happened. I saw it perfectly, right? 
but I have to go to a job. So the two guys in the accident say, Hey, can you, can you hang out? Yeah, I'll hang out for a little bit, but I have to be at my job. I'm going to get fired. So I saw everything perfectly. My view is inerrant. My name is tradition T for Tim. Right. And, but the cops aren't getting there for me to give my story to. So I'm like, let's flag down another car. Let's get the guy out of the car. I'll tell him exactly what I have. And, and I have an inerrant uh, view of what happened. So we flagged down another guy. His name is Scripture, right? The process of editing. I tell him inerrantly, infallibly, what happened. This is the process of publication and editing. And then he has it. And he can, he can pass it on to the cops, which let's imagine he does. Scripture does it. And I have to bounce, right? The story that the cops get from Scripture is only as perfectly valid, as inerrant, as infallible, as me giving it to him. And let's pretend the year is something like 375, 380. That's it. It would be one thing if you could cut out the middleman and he was there all along, he's scripture, but he wasn't, right? Even though those books were written maybe in the first century AD, they weren't edited or published or cold in, cold out. There's a gospel of St. James, a St. Thomas, whatever. The church knew to make that call infallibly. And it did so because of infallible tradition. That is the set piece. And all Protestant Catholic apologetics need to begin there. That There you have it from me. We'll start taking some questions, but Chris, did you have a thought on my, uh, it's, it's auto, auto school 101. Yeah, no, I, I agree with it. It's a, it's a good point. Okay, so we have first question. Does the repeated sacrifice of the mass devalue the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross? <laughs> Chris, you were just talking about this. Why don't you hit that one? Oh man, there's there's a, so much that could be said here. Um, does it devalue? It's it's not a re-sacrifice. It's just a it's the same sacrifice made once for all. Um, and I like to say that we're brought back to that sacrifice. Um, uh, it's it's pretty simple. It's not. The answer is no. <laughs> the answer is no. But yeah, it's a bloodless sacrifice. It's not the same one. I thought you could go off on what we were talking about, uh, you know, atonement and all that. But that's probably, that'll probably come up in another. That'll take us so far afield. I mean, yeah. what's, yeah. what's which sacrifice? Are we talking about the Passover sacrifice? Are we talking about how are we going to interpret it? The Passover sacrifice, the atonement sacrifice, and what is actually going on with both of those, with both of those, um, uh, those, those sacrifices, there are two distinct things happening. So there's so much that we could go into. But basically, to answer his question, no, it doesn't devalue it. Okay, we have next question. Could you explain why the filioque is the correct interpretation of the pro procession of the Holy Spirit? In a word, um, the, the filioque is the understanding that all the fathers had, that the apostles had, and was simply not codified. I, I don't exactly understand, maybe you do, Chris, at Nicaea, at the council, when they came up with the first iteration of the prayer, Charlemagne added the filioque, by the way, um, Charlemagne. For all those people that think that, that um, you know, integralism is cool and integralism is good and that you want your king tinkering, even if he's a pretty faithful, somewhat faithful guy like Charlemagne, he tinkered and he annoyed all the popes of his day. Filioque is just one example now, in some sense, it's he's good he did it, but this was the understanding of of the fathers all along that the that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son. Do you have any clue, Chris, why this didn't get codified into the prayer at the Council of Nicaea? Because I actually don't. No, 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 no. I don't. Yeah, they, I, they, 
they missed. They swung. It was suffice to say they swung and they missed at Nicaea. They were dealing with uh, the Nicene Creed in a capacity where they were just defending Christ's divinity itself, Christ's membership in the, the Holy Trinity itself. They weren't focused on that detail, right? So from that small, small uh, angle, you'd say, well, it was a swing and a miss there, but they weren't trying to demonstrate from you know whom or whence the Holy Spirit proceeded. They were trying to defend Christ's very divinity against Arius and the Arians there. Okay, next question. What is more important, scripture or the church's catechism? Chris, you hit that. It depends on which catechism, since the 92 is the best. No, I'm just kidding. Dude, <laughs> stop, dude please. Please. Speaking of being seriously here, because I know a bunch of trads are going to get mad at that. Um, uh, I think, uh, well, scripture is the inspired word of God. So, I mean, you can't really trump that. It's the inspired word of God. Um, the catechism is an aid to interpreting. It's, it's, it's a magisterial aid to interpreting scripture. I mean, it's not either or two. Uh, sometimes we can say, you know, which one's better? Well, the catechism is not the inspired word of God, but it, like tradition in the magisterium, it's a magisterial text. It, it, it's meant to, I mean, it's like saying, you have to realize that the catechisms are, the catechism of Trent and the 92 catechism, Baltimore catechism, it's filled with scripture. So you're talking about scripture when you're talking about uh, the catechism. The catechism is based on scripture and um, it illuminates scripture. But it's safe to say scripture, scripture being inerrant and the, the pure revelation directly yeah. from God is higher. It's like reading the primary source text versus reading the cliff notes in some sense. Also the cliff notes, the catechisms can err and have erred. Okay, um, I have to, how do you pronounce this? Um, it's uh, UNUM Sanctum says one must, uh, one must be in communion with the Pope to be saved. Vatican I affirms papal infallibility in matters of faith and morals. I don't see this in the early church or fathers. Uh, I think it goes on there. Clearly, there is clearly a primacy of Rome among other bishops, but Catholics mistake this for supremacy, which is clearly a doctrinal development. Um, no, it is implicit in, um, we were just talking about this in church history, so it's, it's uh, fortuitous, actually, that it should come up now. It is implicit in universal jurisdiction, uh, it, because for the same reason that the, in some sense, the primacy of tradition over against scripture is implicit in the chronology. You, you get the same thing there, not, not in the chronology, Implicit in the hierarchical ordering, right, of, of um, the way that the magisterium works, you have to have a, a situation where there's a hierarchical ordering. Let me, can I see that question again? Sure, there's a super chat question. There you go. Can you read it there? Yeah, yeah. So um, universal jurisdiction, if the Pope is to have a kind of um, pyramidal, enjoy being at the pinnacle of a pyramidal hierarchy, over the other bishops, it Im implies directly, uh, strong implication, meaning one can infer from it, that uh, he has the power to correct unilaterally. And to correct unilaterally is a, ultimately a distinction without a difference when we're talking about something like the third Marian dogma. Well, it's not a correction of anyone. It's just next cathedra statement. The fourth Marian dogma, same, pace third. But, but no, it actually is a kind of correction. 
And when we view uh, the, the Pope's ex cathedra statements as a kind of winnowing or what we'd call prescinding from errant views that, that are out there in the possible realm of views on, say, Mary, it's a correction that, that, is, that is implicit. It's, it's at least not in contradistinction with or contradiction with um, anything implied right from the outset in the, uh, the universal jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome. Could I, could I add on to that real quick? I think I, I've been paying attention a lot to uh, like some Catholic Protestant dialogues um, that have been happening. And there's a lot of diving into the church fathers in the early church, but you know, scripture is primary here. And I think that even when sometimes Catholics and Protestants go into say Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, they go through it real fast, almost too fast. And to show the primacy of, of Peter, it's very simple. Just stick, stick with scripture, have scripture be your foundation. Jesus Christ is coming as the son of David. Okay. He's coming as, coming as the son of David, Isaiah 40 cited at all three of the, the beginning of the synoptic gospels. He's ending the Exodus. He's reestablishing the kingdom. This is why Matthew's gospel has the Matthew 16 verse 19 uh, passage in it, because it's the kingdom gospel. It's the gospel all about the kingdom of God. And Matthew's gospel presents the kingdom of in a, a kingdom of God in a way that could best be described as external. Luke could Luke is describing the kingdom of God in a way that's best described as internal because he has several uh, um, uh, several feasts that aren't in the other gospels. But Matthew is primarily concerned with the external structure of the gospel and Jesus as the son of David. So he presents him as the son of David um, in uh, Matthew chapter one, and then he goes on to describe. You know, he as soon as Jesus says. I'm establishing, you know, the gospel of the kingdom of God. He appoints the 12 apostles to fulfill the 12 tribes of Israel because he's going to unite the 10 tribes that are lost in the diaspora and stuff. But the key thing here is that when you get to Matthew 16, verse 19, we'd have to go over an entire Matthew Bible study to actually see the force of this. But when he gets to Matthew 16, verse 19, you know, the key thing, and this hasn't been brought up at all with a lot of the discussions that have been happening on YouTube between Catholics and Protestants. Jesus cites Isaiah 22, 22. Okay, this is really key. I, I don't understand why this is a big, I don't understand why we keep missing this in the discussion. Jesus is citing a text from the Old Testament. That means that if he knew what that text meant and the apostles did and Matthew did, then we need to go figure out what, what's happening there. And it, of course, it's the whole issue of Eliakim and Shebna and the keys being passed down. When, there, when Protestants say that there's no, you know, uh, there's no, maybe Peter had the keys, which he did, but there's no succession there. Of course, that's what the keys denote. The keys denote succession. Isaiah 22 is the whole, the whole point is the passage is the keys are being passed from Shebna to Eliakim. Um, and by the way, a lot of Protestants and Catholics sometimes don't respond to this. A lot of Protestants will say that there is no Pope in the Bible. Actually, there is. And it's in Isaiah chapter 22. Um, Eliakim will be a father to the house of Israel. The father just means Pope, Papa. So we got to get this out there to the Protestants. Um, but he's citing Isaiah 22, 22. And that position that he's appointing Peter to, there's only one position. Okay, it's the prime minister's position. Jesus is the, the Davidic king. He's the king. And underneath him is the uh, prime minister. And then below him is the 12 tribes of Israel. It's, it's there. You don't have to go necessarily to the church fathers and say, oh, I'm not really sure what Irenaeus said here or what, you know, so on and so forth. And what about this chair of St. Peter? It's right there in the text. 
Jesus gives one of them the position of prime minister because the church is the Davidic kingdom. It's the new Davidic kingdom. So the primacy of Peter is right there in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. Um, and, and, but it's, it's reading the whole story and Matthew 16, 19 comes in the midst of this gospel, this, this gospel that Matthew's presenting about the kingdom, that it's the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom. So that's important to keep in mind. There's much more that could be said on that, but I'm sure we got other questions. My next question, my brother is getting married, not in a church. However, both my brother and his bride were raised Catholic. Do I not attend the wedding? Yes. Don't attend the wedding. Uh, Okay. Do I, do I, do I, yeah, I mean, no? <laughs> I mean they're, they're raised Catholic. They're not, they're not getting married in the church. This would be, I don't want to go through the decision tree for the different kinds of cooperation. That's a meme in itself, but it is one of the kinds of morally culpable cooperation or just tr try to convince them to get married in the church. But if you won't, I can't do it. Okay, great. Okay. New, uh, two questions here. Um, what is the basis for Mary's perpetual virginity and assumption? And two, how do Catholics address the passage in Matthew about calling no earthly man father? Do you guys each want to take one of those? <laughs> yeah, Chris, you do the, um, you, actually you can, I mean, we're, you're the scripture guy. Why don't you, why don't you take as short as you can and, and hit both those? Cause I know you can, you're a pitcher hitting. <laughs> Sorry. So ask the question again. What's uh, the Mary's perpetual virginity. What's the basis for that? And then what about um, the passage in Matthew about calling no earthly man father? Okay. Um, the calling no earthly man father. I mean, Paul says to call, to, to see him and call him as a, to, to see him as a father. So I think they're just taking that too literalistically. Um, the idea is that we all have one father in heaven, um, one eternal father. Um, not that you can't call your dad, dad or another father. It's just, again, it's like, I mean, I hate to use this, but when Jesus says, I'm the door, he's not literally a door. Um, you have to sort of read between the lines. I, I don't think he's saying that you can't call, you, you can't, um, call anybody father you just can't identify them as the supreme father because you have one father and the whole point of course is that jesus is trying to reveal the father when you see me you see the father what father is he talking about he's talking about the one eternal so eternal father and there could be some political implications there as well because um and tim knows that i'm all into all attuned to the anti-imperial rhetoric in the new testament that there could be maybe some some something going on with uh, undermining caesar there by, because Caesar Caesar is the, the the father of the empire, but I'll just leave that push that to one side. In terms of Mary's perpetual virginity, um, uh, well, this is where this is where you know the the church um, the church's tradition is going to help illuminate passages of scripture, and this is why we're not scripture alone, because even though certain things are explicit. Some things are a bit more confusing. Uh, we need the church's help to, um, to, um, to settle some of these tough issues. In terms of Mary's perpetual virginity, uh, let me just reference um, uh, the book by Brant Petrie. And he has a really interesting take. He was on the Matt Leonard show a long time ago, um, uh, explaining that the way Mary says that she knows not man, that... That and I could I could be interpreting it wrong, but Petrie makes the point that the way she words that is is in like a kind of a solemn vow that that she's taken a vow of perpetual virginity. 
Um, and you need, you need to go see his book. I remember Scott Hahn said it. So it's like one of the best books on Mary. Um, so go check out Brant Petrie's book on that. And he, he has a treatment on that. I, I haven't familiarized myself with his specific argument, um, but he makes the case that uh, the way she words that is like a vow of perpetual virginity. Um, and also just to deal with the, an issue that, uh, you know, m some people probably have heard out there, but a lot of Protestants haven't. The, the word for brother and cousin is the same thing. Any kind of uh, kinsman or countryman is the same. And so when we refer to Jesus as brothers, we're referring to him as his, his uh, kinsfolk. This is no kind of uh, burden shifting uh, supposition that there's no burden shifting supposition entailed by the fact that the New Testament refers to Jesus's cousins. That doesn't do anything, does it, to prove that uh, Mary was no longer virgin after uh, giving birth to Jesus. Okay, um, the next question, why is it any more credulous that God gave us an inerrant scripture than God gives us an inerrant tradition? Uh, it's well, it's not. That's that's precisely this this question. Unless I'm reading it wrong, sounds as if it's um, asked with a wrong presupposition. The Catholics believe in inerrant scripture and in infallible tradition, and and the point is you can't have one without the other. I we're, we're not. It's not as if Protestants are are um, believers in the inerrancy of scripture, and Catholics reject that doctrine and, and favor instead an infallibility of tradition. No, that's wrong. Catholics, on the other hand, pointing at, I, I think not strongly enough, the kind of chronological reasoning that I just gave you uh, about, look, the fact that when the individual letters and writings of what's today called a collected work, a scripture, you know, the Bible, when those were written, they were not yet scripture. The act of editing and publishing by the, the Muratonian canon in, in canon selection process in the late fourth century, this is part of the act of scripture itself. And that means that tradition has a role because tradition is literally the metric, the canon. That's what that means is a measuring stick against which truth and untruth were, were cold. So you pull out the, the false gospels, the apocryphal gospels like Thomas or James, and you say, no, these don't meet measure stick or they don't meet canon. Um, so you see, you see here that just because all of the writings might've been done in the first century by St. Paul and, and uh, the evangelists, that is not the same thing. Identity and constitution aren't identical. <laughs> Identity is just um, all of the parts of scripture. Constitution would, would involve all the parts of scripture being thrown together in a meaningful way where you can say, this is the Bible here. And in order to have the latter, well, what constitutes the Bible is a literally a reading of each of those, whatever it is, 20, 27 books, we're talking about the New Testament, with the assumption that they're the direct word of God. You couldn't do that before the Catholic Church went through its editing process, its canon selection process in the fourth century. So in that full plenary sense, the Bible did not exist until it was edited. There were, there were books that would make it in and there were books that would make it out. But the editing process, which is part of the tradition apparatus itself, uh, it must have been infallible in order to get to inerrant scripture. So we're not, we're not picking one over the other. We're saying you must have, it's both and Protestants 
can't explain one without the other. Okay, why is kneeling and praying before a carved statue of a saint, praying to that saint, not idolatry? Was Moses not real in the same way as a New Testament saint? However, none in Israel world would have done the same. Uh, this was dealt with at Constantinople two, I believe, uh, not maybe three, I think it's either Constantinople two or three praying, uh, through, through a means, right. That, that helps the, when we go through Thomistic reasoning, right. What, what the brain and then the five senses helps us to do with regard to the world, smelling, tasting, touching, hearing, uh, that it helps us to form phantasms in, in the brain you know, the, the reproductions of what we're smelling, tasting, touching, hearing, or seeing. And it helps us to do so more explicitly when we have, um, if we're trying to uh, make a prayer through, through St. Mary to Christ, then it helps us to have a statue of her. It helps us to form better phantasms. It makes us better prayers. It is not actually praying to the statue. It's praying through the statue I think that was dealt with at Constantinople too. If it wasn't there, it was it was uh, Constantinople three. The point is, it's one of the early council, councils that the Protestants shouldn't really uh, be comfortable hating. Um, I don't know if Chris had something to add there. Yeah, did you have something to add, Christopher? Well, I, I can't. I couldn't remember the question, but I think she was asking, about, or she or he was asking about idolatry. I mean, it's idolatry is the worship of false gods, and we don't think the saints are God. I can't, I can't remember the exact question, but it's not idolatry. Can Catholics actually serve as a juror if he or she is asked to put their beliefs aside and serve impartial, impartially? We never put God aside, right? Oh, this question. We never put God aside, right? Just pondering about the Q&A given in the, the, the Chauvin trial. Uh, yeah, you, you're, the reason that you're allowed to do this as a Catholic or, or a Protestant is because when when we are reminded of the distinction between the eternal law, the natural law, the positive law, an important question, even for Catholics debate about amongst ourselves, we are um, we we ought to remind ourselves and chasten ourselves to the fact that the natural law ought to be on which positive laws, hopefully, if it's a good regime, are, are more or less based, of, particularly in the criminal law, are available to everyone. So we don't have, we're, we're not actually making adjudications or nullifications or whatever our, our um, as a juror, what our renderings would be. We're not doing so on the basis of any um, supernatural virtue uh, without which we could not make a, make a good rendering. We're making our, our decisions and our adjudications based on the natural law itself. And, and, and no one can block us that we, we pray, you know, before each, session is begun and adjourned or whatever. We can, we can cross ourselves. We can say a decade of the rosary at lunch. We can do whatever we need to do. The, the state doesn't actually do anything sufficiently evil to block us. And, and what we're really accessing is our, our, um, our phronesis, which is to say our, our, our prudential reasoning. Uh, anyway, natural, natural justice, natural reasoning. Um, why did Catholics bundle and consolidate Jesus with the other solar deities by claiming his birthday is December 25th when many scholars say it was a September birthday? Well, I mean, the, the, Chris, did you have, uh, you want to take a first crack at this? I, I have no, a, a... Go ahead, go ahead. I, it's funny that, that the, um, the people that just watch Comedy Central 
for uh, their, their, their information on anti-Christian apologetics are so obsessed with calendars, isn't it? it? It's, it's really, really funny. I mean, there's, there's just a lot of, a lot of evidence to the contrary. And um, so you're just asserting a, a counterfactual and it's, it's unfortunate because uh, you, you, it just looks like you're really confident in the assertion, but I'm, I would, I would counter that um, there's no bundling happening whatsoever. Fult, Archbishop Fulton Sheen does a really great um, um, mock kind of imitation uh, version of what the secularists do to us with Christ when, when he talks about, uh, you know, Apollo, the sun god. And we could, we could say that you didn't believe that um, because Apollo begins with A and his mother was Thetis, that, <laughs> that I don't know, Napoleon uh, didn't exist because his mother was also Thetis. You're talking about historical accidents that happen to bind together. A lot of them are as silly or superficial as what what someone's name, what letter someone's name begins with, or their mother, or whatever. What what month they were born in? It, it's simply you know throwing anti-Christian spaghetti at a wall and hoping it sticks. There is much evidence in both scripture and tradition that uh, late December was the time. There's zero evidence that Christians would want to bundle anyway. It militates against the the ostensible veracities of our claims that Jesus was real and he's not based on mythology for us to not bundle, bundle anyway. It's just, it's a silly, it's a silly question when you think about it. Um, let's see here. How do you respond to Calvinists who say that we have no free will since everything we do is rooted in sin? Chris, you want to take that? Wait, go ahead and run that back. Sorry. Um, they said, uh, how do you respond to Calvinists who say that we have no free will since everything we do is rooted in sin? I mean, so there are, that's an interesting way to ask the question. Um, I remember years ago when my friends gave me this little green book on the points of Calvinism and I was debating on becoming a Calvinist. Um, I remember one of my friends talking to me and he's like, he's like, free will is, he's like, free will is an illusion. And let me give you an example. And he's like, imagine that you're in a room and the door is locked and and uh, you, you have the option to leave or to stay and you decide to stay. But what you didn't realize was that the door was locked the whole time. And he's like, so that's, that's, that's what free will is. You think you have free will, but it's really an illusion. You don't have free will. Um, and I wasn't buying it initially. Um, but I'm not, I, I'm, uh, there's a bunch of passages that prove the other, the, go in the other direction that um, we do have free will. Um, I don't know. I don't know exactly the, the point about because we're sin, because we're totally depraved. I mean, that's T in the tulip, total depravity, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. They're, that's their tulip scheme. And you need total depravity. Man is totally depraved. If the, the, the issue I think is that Calvin, Calvinists are trying to get at that. You need grace. You need grace and Catholics completely agree with that but we believe that there can be grace that moves the will and so it's it's god's will cooperating with the grace uh, they think that if god's grace is given to us then it's it there is no free will there or it it devalues the free will because the free will all we're going to do always is just choose evil um 
And we just say, no, we do, we do choose evil freely. We also choose good. And when we do choose good, it's because of God's grace. It's cooperating with that grace. The whole free will predestination, um, uh, predestination debate and discussion is uh, a very difficult one. Um, I'd recommend if they want to go check out a really good book on it, go check out Matthias Sheevan's work, Mysteries of Christianity. He talks about predestination and free will in there. And that's a good place to start. I don't know cool. if they but yeah sorry the the position that they impute to catholics is a condemned heresy pelagianism so it's it's again i'm sad to say like so many of these protestant uh, accusations it's literally based in a kind of shamefaced embarrassed just ignorance of what what catholicism stands for what propositions it stands for we we've condemned pelagianism outright for for those who are a little bit newer to the question the basic model is one of uh, uh, cars, you know, gas tank full to empty. What we agree about with the Protestants is that in the prelapsarian state, Adam and Eve, before they fell, had the, you know, the, the, the gas tank three quarters full or something, seven eighths, seven eighths full. And it was uh, a much more enlightened intellect. And it was a much more uh, good oriented will, the two parts of the, the immortal human soul before the fall of Adam and Eve. After the fall, that's where Protestants and Catholics characterize our own views differently. Catholics say that we went to, you know, an intellect that was mostly in darkened, pointed at empty, you know, but maybe with an eighth of a tank left and a will that was mostly oriented at the bad. That's why it's easy to pick up a bad habit, hard to pick up a good habit. That's when Aristotelian ethics kicks in. It's also why the Protestants hate Aristotelian virtue ethics because they reject it. The Protestants part and parcel of this, they said that the, the gas tank went from seven eighths full, then the fall to, to all the way empty, meaning there is no intellect to lead the will to the good in this uh, concupiscent state. This is the state that the will exists in when it's pointed mostly at, at empty, but not all the way empty. We retain uh, the capacity to do some good, vir- to do virtue and the, the, the state the, the case states itself, it's a recipes eloquitor. Good is done even by certain blessed pagans. Now, there are little graces that are acting in mysterious ways and at all times. This is not Pelagianism. It just, it's a counterfactual. Again, it proves that there must be uh, some, some free will left over that, that's um, other than the way the Protestants describe it. Do Catholics have to be anti-death penalty? No, no. They don't. They, this is just um, basically Pope number 264 started turning the, the wheel in this direction toward the view that the, the de- toward what's essentially a consequentialist view of the death penalty, that it could be used. In other words, you could kill uh, a guilty accused if the guilty, if, if killing the guilty accused would save lives. This is actually a fallacy. I, I've written papers on it. It's a fallacy because if it were wrong in principle to kill the guilty accused, then it would be wrong to kill them in order to save lives. Catholicism condemns consequentialism. Yeah, John Paul II's position is based on consequentialism. Francis tries to make it robust, but it's, he, he does a bad job. Sorry, Chris. No, go ahead. Next question. That was good. Next question is actually for you, Chris. It's a super chat. They said, I know Tim's answer to this, but Chris, what is your take on Pachamama and the Vatican Gardens? Oh man, you guys are putting me on the hot seat tonight. Um, Can they refine that question for Chris a little yeah, bit? Yeah, 
to get more specific, I mean, in, in terms of the whole situation. Yes, yeah, it's, it's really bad. Chris isn't going to have a different point of view on that, but do, 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 unless you refine the question. So. Oh, yeah, I, I think they were just, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, um, well, well, we'll we'll take a refined. Chris will answer a refined version of that question. But isn't we, ecumenical services contrary to God's holy apostolic church? What do they mean by services? I don't know what that means either. Maybe they'll clarify. Um, let's see here. So I don't I don't know what either of those okay, questions uh, means. Should so. Catholics believe in evolution? Should uh, Catholics Catholics as long as Chris, you should handle this. The, there, there are four essential elements that the Pontifical Biblical Commission requires that we believe about Genesis one and two, um, and and it depends what you mean by evolution. It's kind of like saying market economics. Uh, as long as you meet those four marks, then um, and and nothing you believe is in contradistinction to them, you should be fine. Do you know what the? Can you say what those four marks are, Chris? Are these questions from? Is this Protestant Q and A? Yeah, got some interesting Protestants asking. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, the four I, I can't remember exactly what they are. We can do a quick Google search, and you can find it on your own. Um, You're the one that taught me about it like four years ago or something, and I, th I thought it was really good. It's like Adam and Eve were real people. You have to believe that. That's yeah. one of them. That's they really of fell. Their fall necessitated a redeemer. Is one of them, and that they were the first woman and man, I think it's, it's something like that. And that they're, Oh, and that their fall was, was freely chosen. Yeah. I think those are, yeah, I think those were, there might be a few more, I'm not entirely sure. I'd have to go look it up. I don't want to give anybody false information. So I'm just, I'll hang back, but you can find it. But in terms of, in terms of evolution, um, I can't, I think the question was, was should Catholics believe it? Um, and I, uh, I think you just have to go and weigh, try to weigh the evidence. Um, but let me put, let me, let me say this though. There's nothing, there's nothing in Genesis one and two that would necessarily lead you to a, to the conclusion that evolution is not a possibility. Um, you know, uh, just as you wouldn't, you know, read the six literal 24 hour days as being literal. I mean, Augustine realized, you know, light isn't created until day four. So, so there's a theological literary design to um, Genesis one and two, you know, some people take the framework hypothesis um, as one of the, you know, explanations, but you can easily, uh, but there's nothing in Genesis one and two that would necessarily, you know, point you in a direction that would say you, you don't, you, you should not, uh, believe in evolution if that's the question that they're asking yeah nothing preclusive there and as a matter of fact the the order of creation happens on the two creation accounts in conflicting ways so all of a sudden you have to you have to recur to the anagogical mode of interpreting those those two different accounts back to back right there in whatever it is genesis 2 so I wouldn't say conflicting. I wouldn't say conflicting ways. I would say complementary ways. But that's going to take us to a far field to get well, into different that. sequences. Stuff light is made before the animals in in uh, in one, and, and animals before light, or the other, or or animals before. I'll, I'll have to get them out. These yeah. uh, this is this is what Catholic answers must feel like every day. But there are literally different sequences, so that that's always a conflict if you're trying to be. Uh, if you're trying to reason outside of the anagogical mode. So yeah, I would say we're pretty, pretty lucky that um, 
on certain theistic accounts of evolution. There, there's literally nothing being bent. There's no gymnastics happening here. It's insinuated by the fact that the Bible itself, whatever Moses, whoever's writing this down, is giving us, uh, and I'm not a biblical theologian, but he's giving us a, a kind of free free reign to say, okay, this is, this is an anagogical mode of reasoning because uh, I can't go to the store, then the market, then the bank. If, if I'm literally, if I say I went to the bank, then the store, then the market. There's a kind of liberality that's, that's conferred by the, the sequence of events there. Uh, we have another super chat question. I'm a conservative Lutheran exploring the Catholic church and the Orthodox church. Why should I choose Catholicism over, over the Orthodox? Oh man, so many reasons because the, uh, the, the Orthodox fall into all the obvious moral errors, even if even if uh, most faithful Catholics are no big fans of, of the current pontificate, which is a safe generalization, uh, nothing. Look at the fact that the pontificate has, has never erred in what it's taught. None of the uh, ecumenical councils have ever erred in terms of what they taught. And yet the moral theology of the Orthodox is so clearly errant, right? That, that they, they've, in the 20th century, started making the same changes after and pursuant to the Lambeth conferences that Protestants did, right? It was the first time in like Christian history that any Christian, Catholic, Protestant, or Orthodox, um, the latter two, uh, together in 1930 after the Lambeth Conference started allowing uh, uh, artificial contraception. That was always Christian practice, even in the early Protestant and Orthodox churches. And so they're, they're more susceptible to the changes of modernism along with all of the, the theological reasons um, that, that you're probably hearing about most of the time, same pace divorce. Look to the moral theology to prove that the Catholic Church, even though we're in rough days right now, has never changed and will never change the way that the Orthodox Church has. What's immutable cannot be changed. I, I, and I would just add, you know, that you want to be in union with the Davidic king, right? Um, you, and that Davidic king is Jesus Christ. And he has set a visible prime minister on earth. It's very simple. And so to be in union with the Davidic king, you have to be in union with the prime minister that he set over his, his earthly realm. And, and that's, that's Peter and his successors. Very simple. Uh, let's see here. Um, explain why hailing Mary isn't considered summoning of the dead. <laughs> next. Well, it, it's definitely, definitely not. For one thing, is as, as you know, it's it's a scriptural term. When when she was hailed by um, Archangel Gabriel, it was uh, a hailing of the living. When we talk about Mary, the only human besides Jesus to be, according to tradition, well before Scripture, um, the only human to be assumed body and soul as a person into heaven, the only person besides Jesus who is still a person. Um, it's, it's very important to understand that a human being, a uh, corporeal body of a rational nature, we are sui generis. We're the only kind of corporeal body or corporeal substance that has a soul or a form that survives its body, right? So when we talk about Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, we're using his name um, in a soft way, in a technically and equivocal way, because Lazarus, before he gets his body back at the resurrection, is not Lazarus, Thomas Aquinas says. Lazarus is a human being. A human being is always uh, in, in, in soul body. 
when uh, the intellect survives alone until the perusia, until the general judgment, same thing with any of the souls in, in purgatory or heaven other than Mary, um, it, is, it is not actually even a, a person. So when we talk about the, the, the person of Mary, she still exists body and soul. She's the only one that actually is. Now, when we, when we recur to the prayer of any of the saints who have been canonized, meaning it's a, a claim that they are in heaven, we are, are using something called synecdoche. We are referring to the whole in order to refer to a part. And so it's, it actually is an equivocal usage of the term. Mary's different, though, because she was assumed body and soul, meaning she still is a human being. Human, humans aren't actually, don't exist qua humans before the resurrection of the body at the general judgment. That includes the saints until they get their bodies back. Mary's the exception. Um, I'll ask one um, that I know I hear a lot of Protestants talk about. What about all the scandal in the church and all of the things with the um, underage stuff with, with minors? Can you guys speak to you know, people who are looking to the Catholic church and how these sorts of things have affected conversions? Chris, you want to go first to that? I mean, I always feel like I had just have like obvious answers, but um, yeah. it's not as obvious. It's just that, you know, you have scandals all throughout the church's history. Um, uh, even, I mean, during the Council of Trent, really. Um, and you have, you know, during the church's best days, you still have scandals. It, does, it just depends on whether or not Jesus Christ established this church as his right. kingdom. As the, as, as the kingdom on earth or not. Um, he never said it was going to be perfect. He just established a prime minister and he established the sacraments. Um, and I mean, look at Peter comes up short. Um, Judas does what he did, does and uh, uh, or does what he did. And um, you just, you're going to have scandals. And remember, this is, this is a, this is war zone. Um, you're going to have a lot of casualties. So I think that the church is Christ's military, the Catholic church is Christ's military. It's his kingdom here on earth. And there are many casualties, but you still have to join the right side and fight. Uh, it's a great mode of credibility that the infiltration that happened by Marxists and, and Masons into the church, and they, they did do so through corrupting the priesthood, through um, having a, a whole rank of um, homosexualists and other moral corruptors enter the priesthood. This is pretty well-documented stuff. I'm writing at least one book on it right now. Uh, it's, it's a great mode of credibility that this would happen to the one true church. This probably wouldn't happen to all the other fake or less than whole uh, Christian congregations. I, I, don't, I don't mean fake in the sense of, uh, I mean, the sense in which one could use the term church with a capital C. It's, there's, there's just plenary evidence before the, the even the House uh, Commission on Un-American Activities. We had the, the, the testimony of Bella Dodd. We have now with the Venona files, um, admissions by Stalin and some of his agents that they were trying to in, in, infiltrate the Roman Catholic Church because it is enemy number one. And their primary means of doing it was to have a bunch of homosexuals go into the priesthood. And um, even DSM-5, the, the playbook of the secular left, the, the psychotherapeutic playbook, um, it stipulates that if um, whether or not uh, the victim of sexual molestation is of a legal age is not the question. The determinative sex of the person that, that uh, 
an abuser chooses to abuse is said to be determinative of their sexual preference if it's a post-pubescent post -pubescent abuse. So if it's um, a 14, 15, 16 year old that's being abused, which was the vast majority of these abuses, um, ephebophilia rather than, than pedophilia, then it does tell us something about the sexual preferences of these, these abusers in the church. 80 to 85% of them were homosexual men. They were not um, gender neutral as it, as DSM five even tells us that the, the sexual, the gender choice of the abuser would be if it's younger than a, a pubescent child. So it's, it's uh, the fruits of a, a deliberate attempt infiltration attempt by Marxists and Masons in the late 19th and early 20th century to infiltrate the one to church. Okay, I think Chris has got to go soon, so he's going to pop off, but I think there's one question for him here. Can you give biblical evidence about the sacrament of confession? John chapter 20 verse, John chapter 18 verse 20 through 23. Um, let me just check here. I think it's John chapter 18 verses 20 through 23. Jesus breathed on them and says, whatever sins you forgive are forgiven, whatever sins you hold bound are held bound. Um, I think John chapter 18 verse, nope, that's not it. It's John chapter, maybe John chapter 20. Um, but Jesus breathed on his apostles and said, I give you the Holy Spirit whose sins you forgive are forgiven, whose who sins you hold bound are held bound. Um, uh, so, I mean, that's pretty clear, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, who sends you, and I, I remember, um, oh, John, yeah, John chapter 20 verse 23, sorry. Um, uh, I remember like talking to some of my friends one time and I'm like, you know, I remember going to this, uh, Protestant, uh, this Protestant, uh, ecclesial community service. And, um, I was like a brand new Catholic. I was just coming back to the faith or no, no, actually I was a brand new Christian cause I was sort of an atheist for a while. And then my Protestant friends helped me, you know, come to a belief in Christ and, except Christ as my Lord and savior and so on and so forth. And I remember going to this first, like first time going to this Protestant service. I totally thought it was going to be like a Catholic mass. Cause I had been to a Protestant service ever. I grew up Catholic. And, um, and this guy comes running out on stage and he, the, his first words are, uh, praise the Lord that we don't have to go to a priest for confession that we can go straight to Jesus Christ. And initially I was like, okay, okay, okay. I grew up Catholic. I knew they, you know, taught us to, you know, we go to a priest for our first confession and, or, you know, we go to a priest for confession. And so anyways, I just kind of went with it because I was super ignorant um, and, you know, didn't know all the distinctions between Protestants and Catholics in my freshman year of, high, of college. And um, I remember I was with a bunch of friends uh, from my college and I was like, hey, so what, what, I heard him say some stuff about Catholics. And um, I'm just wondering, like, so do, do you guys, you guys don't have priests and they're like, no, we have pastors. And it's like, okay, do you like go to confession or how does that work? And they're like, no, no, no. Um, we just confess to Jesus once and we accept him into our, our heart as Lord and savior and boom, we're saved. And I'm like, okay, but I went home or I went to my dorm room that night and I Googled like, why do priests, why do Catholics go to priests for confession? And I came across John chapter 20, verse 23 it was the Catholic answers website. And I was like, huh, this is interesting. Jesus says to his apostles, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, whose sins you hold bound are held bound. So I brought this up with my Protestant friends and um, 
they were like, oh, that's interesting. And they're like, see, here's the thing. And biblical interpretation is kind of difficult and you'll get used to it over time as you familiarize yourself with scripture. But really what Jesus is saying is he's saying that if you're saved, then you know that your sins are forgiven. And if you're, you have your sins forgiven by knowing, because you know that you're saved, then you can look at somebody else who also has saving faith in Jesus and you can tell them that you know that they have true saving faith and that their sins are forgiven. And I'm like, I'm so confused. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know scripture. Like, I mean, I'm not a scripture scholar. I'm kind of a brand new, you know, Christian back to the faith, you know, some back to the faith as I knew it then. And uh, I was like, but I also went to a good, really good college prep, like high school. And I know how to read ancient texts. I can read ancient texts. I'm like, I know, I think he's saying whose sins you forgive are forgiven, whose sins you hold down are held down. So uh, it was pretty straightforward. And I was like, that's interesting. Just the way they responded. I was like, they kind of were like ducking the obvious uh, implications of the text. So then I went on and my whole conversion sort of starts actually with that question. That's how I know John 20, 23. Uh, so well, because I had to use it multiple times. But anyways, I would just go to John chapter 20, verse 23. Who sins you forgive are forgiven. And he's, he's speaking to the 12. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks a million. These are good questions. Interesting questions. A lot of them have a lot of Catholic import. But thank you all for asking tonight. This is the first time we've ever really tried this as we're getting more and more interactive here on Rules for Retrogrades. Remember, if you're looking to move from a blue state to a red state, hopefully, consider... Realestateforlife.com. Hey, Chris, you need to you need to you need to go to realestateforlife.com because they will hook you up with a good Catholic or, or in some cases Protestant pro-life person who will help you to find a house in a good uh, red state. I guess they'll help you if you want to move from a red state to a blue state. But I'm trying to get people to get to a blood red state near you. Also, go to timothyjgordon.com and click enroll. We're opening two new classes. You can learn uh, rules for retrogrades, the class, community organizing from the Catholic right. That's one class. That's just going to be good fun. Ten weeks. It's going to be a lot of fun. And also a repeat course, church history, where you can learn a lot of the things we've talked about here tonight in sequential order, the sequence of chronology. TimothyJGordon.com, click and roll. Chris, thanks a million for, for joining me. You're an original retrograde, and um, you're going to be coming on the show soon to talk about some of the competing atonement theories, uh, other stuff that'll be good for Protestants. Yeah, that'll Thanks. be really good. Thanks for having me on. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst